with announcements. Um, let's go to James chapter 1 this morning. We've talked about the book of James and how it's really a book about faith that works. And if you're like me, uh, you're kind of pragmatic. If something doesn't work, you put it down, you get rid of it, you throw it away, and you move on. And yet many Christians, I believe, uh, start, uh, they profess to know Jesus, uh, they decide they want to follow him, and um, then they try out a few things. And I don't know what your experience is, but I've seen many people without really much going on going, you know what, that's not really for me. And so many times it happens because they have a faith in what God will do for them rather than in faith in who God actually is, what he's promised he would do. And so um, when our situation gets hard, many times it's easier just to say, you know what, I quit. We live in a society that doesn't really stick with things for very long through adversity because we can do just about anything and not have to have patience. I mean, think about it. If I want to order something online... I don't have to wait but like two days now. And it can come from anywhere in the world, two days. That's crazy to me. I remember ordering my first thing online, uh, even though I thought uh, they're going to steal my identity and all this stuff. I ordered something on eBay, and they mailed it to me, and I was so excited it was going to be there in three weeks. But now it's even rushed to the point where we get normal deliveries in two days, and we can pay 100 bucks a year and get free shipping on everything. And so we're so quick to do things that, and, and our patience is getting shorter and shorter as we live in kind of a, a microwave society. And yet what James chapter 1 says is that we can count it all joy when we experience various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. And actually, if we'll let patience have her perfect work in our lives, it will develop character in us and make us complete or whole and mature, lacking nothing. Now, if I know most Americans, we don't want to lack anything. We want to have everything that we need, and yet spiritually, God has offered to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, First Peter says, in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so this morning, as we open up James chapter 1, we are three weeks in. This is our third week in James, and we're going to start in verse 19, but before we get there, I want to go ahead and read to you verse 1 through 18. He says, James, as he opens the letter, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. I like that word perfect, but we get the wrong idea from it. We think of something as perfect that's unflawed completely. And yet what we find out is that he's talking about maturity. But then he says perfect, and then another word that seemingly means the same thing, perfect and complete. And then there's a third repetition of the same idea of lacking nothing. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, if you read the Psalms, when they repeat something that sounds the same, we make, uh, he, we make poetry and we think of rhyme. We have a rhythm and then we make the words rhyme. If you're a Dr. Seuss fan, there's lots of rhyming that goes along. Sometimes it doesn't have to make sense just so it rhymes. But in Hebrew poetry, if you study the Psalms, what you get is if there are three ideas that all agree with each other, it's compounding the meaning. It's kind of putting an exclamation point at the end and then putting another one and then underlining it and then making it bold, if that makes sense. And so with him saying this, perfect, complete, lacking nothing, it sounds redundant in our language if we really think about it, but he's driving the point home that if we'll let patience have its perfect work, that will be complete, completely whole, lacking nothing, mature, everything that God expects us to be and, and wants to, to make us. He doesn't save us and then say, okay, get, make, make yourself perfect on your own. What he does is he saves us and then he sanctifies us. He makes us whole. He doesn't expect us to kind of make it all happen on our own. That should free you. That when you come to Christ, he doesn't say, clean yourself up and then come to me. 
What he says is, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So as we show up, hopefully by this time we realize we don't have to show up with it all together. We just got to show up. And then he's going to bring it all together. Colossians says that he holds all things together and in him all things consist. That he pulls it all together. Even the cells in your body are held together by God's power, not your own. We can't do a thing to add to the length of our life. We can't make our hearts beat. We can't make our lungs work. He does that all. And so that was kind of a rabbit trail, but I wanted to emphasize that point. He says, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits." Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and then enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. My beloved brethren, don't be deceived. God doesn't tempt anyone. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we are tempted by circumstance. We're tempted by Satan himself. We're tempted by his minions. But the reality is, God's not in charge of tempting us. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, lead us not into temptation. That's not for us to like beg God not to lead us into temptation. That's for us to get our minds in sync with him and realize he doesn't lead us into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. So he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God doesn't change. God doesn't vary. He doesn't waver with the times. He's not like a cork sitting on waves. If you ever go fishing and you throw the the cork out there, we use bobbers. They float. Well, where do they go? They go under if they get pulled by something else. But they also, uh, they stay on top. But if the waves start blowing, what happens? It goes with the flow. Jesus didn't go with the flow. His disciples are not supposed to go with the flow. We're supposed to trust him and follow him. And if he doesn't go with the flow, we won't either if we're following him. And so God doesn't change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So of God's will, what is your will? Athletes have the will to win. God has a will to redeem, to give life, to, to make new things happen. It was his will to create everything that we know. It was his will to send his son to die on the cross for our sin because we rejected him. It's his will that we be begotten again to a new hope. So he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of God is what gives life. And it's when the Holy Spirit shines on us and the word of God makes sense 
when those two things work together, they bring forth conception, which is the second birth. Talked about in, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus says, how must a man that is my age be born again? Must I go back into my mother? And Jesus taught that it's, it's to be born again is not to be born of water, which comes from the womb, but to be born again of the Spirit of God. And so we must be born again. There's no name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other way. But then he says, of his own will he brought us forth. Kind of talking about birth there. Now remember what we just read. He says, when desire, my own desire is enticed, and when desire was, has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. But the word of God, conceived in the heart, mixed with the, the, the witness of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, it brings forth what when it conceives? Life. And, and it takes away sin. And so when we're born again, we have this new hope. So the contrast there between what brings forth death, enticement, uh, uh, temptation, and sin leading forth to death, and then the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, bringing forth new life. So then, we must prepare our hearts. Because if the Word of God gave us life, the Word of God will continue to give us life. And so we're going to find that out today. So I have there for you, prepare your heart to receive from God. He says in verse 19, so then, that so then is kind of a transition, based on what he's just said, he says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So notice what it says about the word of God there. In verse 18, it says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave us new life. He brought us like Lazarus out from the grave. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and now we've been born. Jesus has called our name. We've walked out of the grave, and we are a testimony to the world of new life. But then he says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the word. But he says the implanted word. See, at birth, God's written his word upon our hearts, and as we subject ourselves to it, as we read it, as we listen to it, as we talk about it with one another, what happens is that the word implanted in our heart now is basically like kindling that God has left within us. And then when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and witnesses to that fact, reminds us of that word, he slowly, by time, changes our heart and our heart once we fall in love with Jesus in every little area of our lives, our heart makes a convert of our mind. Now, we think about the heart. We think of the, the place where we have feelings. But I would submit to you that that is the place of the will. I'm not talking about our feelings. I'm not talking about our emotions. Our emotions can lie to us. But when our hearts have truly been affected by the Word of God— and they've been softened, no longer crusty against the things of God, but now melted like the snow is going to do outside. When the sun shines upon it, what happens is it melts. But we have to be careful because the word of God that's, that's explained or expressed to the wrong heart will actually take, you ever see dirt in the summer? It's kind of hard. And as the sun beats down on it, what does it do? Does it get soft or harder? It gets harder. But to soften it, it needs the water. And the water is a picture of the Holy Spirit working on a heart. So when there's water on soil and then the sun shines on it, it's malleable, it's breakupable, it's plowable. That's not a word I know, breakupable, but, you know, I went to Farmington, what do you want? So he says that the Word of God, while it was important, it's the seed that's planted in our hearts that, that gave us the ability to come alive in the first place, like conception, it's also just as important for our sanctification. It's able to save our souls. Well, wait a minute. If I've already been born again, what does my soul need saved for? I'm saved. Well, uh, do you need to eat every day to stay alive? The Word of God is implanted, but it also needs to be watered. It also needs to be weeded. 
You know, our hearts are this place of soil. If you've ever planted a garden, you know you can't just plant seed and then just let it go. See what grows. Because there's going to be tap roots. There's going to be stuff in the soil. There's going to be seeds from the animal that uh, churned it up in their stomachs and made a manure. You know, and there are going to be things in there that, that grow up. And there are things still in your heart that God needs, you to, needs to weed out. And he needs us to be willing to let him weed us out. So he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So what I submit to you is that many times I've heard this verse quoted, and it's important that we know that this is true in all relationships. This is true in all of life. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Okay, so I got two ears, right? Double the listening, half the speaking. Now, most of us, myself included, I do not do half the speaking. I do probably double the speaking to make up for my double ears. And I listen a little bit. And so I become hard of hearing because I don't use them. Um, But then what we need to realize is that he's not just talking in general, although it is good advice. But he's talking in accordance to God's testimony and his spirit speaking to us through his word. We can become dull of hearing to the word of God, just like we taught in Hebrews. So he says, be quick to hear to listen. Listening or faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. The more we listen to the word of God, the more God will speak to us through it. The more we subject ourselves to the truth, the more he'll give us. If we're faithful in a little bit that he gives us, he'll give us more, and he'll give us more, and he'll give us more. You can't out-receive from him. He doesn't run out. He's not like that little, you know, cup that you drink water from, you know, in in the, the Dixie Cups. You keep drinking and it keeps coming out. Um, But the reality is we also need to be slow to speak. I think sometimes when we hear the word of God, what we do is we talk instead of receive. We hear it and then we start talking right away. We move on. But the reality is if we are to receive the word of God, we need to not talk back. Don't argue with it. Don't say, I know God, but... That'll get us into a lot of trouble. We remove the potency when we weed, instead of the weeds out of our heart, we weed out the word of God and we explain it away. Well, that's not really what he meant. Has God really said, and who does that sound like? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say, Eve? You know, uh, but he did. So stop explaining away the word of God and let it be potent. Let it be working in your heart. Let it have its perfect work. And then he says, be slow to wrath. And I wrote down humble, be humble. And I say that because I went through a pretty rough week this week. I say that because my kids are always talking and they're never listening. And I am the least patient man you've ever met. I really am. And so the reality is that many times this week, I was uh, quick to speak, quick to wrath, and slow to listen. And that moves things upside down for a Christian. That moves things upside down for a pastor. That moves things upside down for a father and for a husband. It messes up everything. I'm not a good witness in home. Can't be a good witness anywhere else. But God is faithful and his mercies are new. And he showed me this week, if I'll be quick to listen, not be in a rush to speak and fix it, I'll actually get to learn something. So I learned that rather than getting angry and thinking I'm going to produce righteousness in my children, what I'll do is I'll embitter them and make them angry, and they'll think that they can respond to everybody else that way. You sow after what you you reap after what you sow, right? And so um, what we find out is that if we're slow to wrath, um, and, and even when God's word pokes at our flesh, When you subject yourself to the word of God, when you receive it, what happens is that God will start poking around. You ever go to the dentist and they get out that little inspection tool and they start poking on your teeth and you know what's coming. They're going to find that one tiny spot and they're going to hit it and you're going to like grab the chair and just about jump out, threaten to kick him. You know, I've looked at my dentist before and go, stop that. You know, get that thing out of my mouth and stop poking me. But the reality is, is if I don't let him poke me, can't find the problems, he can't fix them, and then I can't eat food that I like. My teeth are sensitive, and so I can't enjoy anything. 
And so what God is doing is he's prodding. And he prods at us by his spirit because he loves us. He's not trying to hurt us. Your dentist isn't either, unless he's some sort of sadist. But he's poking at you because he wants to find the weak spots so he can firm them up. So he can drill them out. Yeah, that's not fun. Trust me, I got a lot of fillings. But then, so he can replace it with something that will firm things up, and then we can move on with our lives. We're no longer walking around super sensitive to things that aren't a big deal. But we can just eat our nachos. Well, maybe that's not a good idea. That's probably what caused the problem. But he pokes at us, and sometimes rather than receiving the prodding, we get angry and we just ignore. Like, stop that. And we, we kind of attribute it to something that's not God. But what we find out is that man's anger destroys life. And it also kinks what God's trying to do in your life. It closes off the hose. And so the word of God gives life. So he says in verse 21, therefore, and therefore is because of what he just said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. The wrath that is produced in your life right now will not produce any righteousness. You can be wrathful towards yourself, towards others. You're not going to produce out of that what you think you will. Dads, I implore you, you're not going to produce righteousness in your kids by threatening the belt every time. It might help sometimes. And sometimes they might need the hiney whooping. But the reality is, many times, most times, it's not going to produce what you think it will. It'll produce fear and then it'll make them shut down. And so he says, receive it. And he says, therefore, verse 21, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Pour yourself out. Empty yourself of the junk. It's the, it's the enticement. It's the desire that's in your heart that produces sin. So empty yourself of it. Agree with God that the things that you're thinking, the things that you're doing are sin and, and forsake your sin. Dump it out. One verse in particular that God used in my life was Ephesians 5.18. And he healed me of many things through this passage. Ephesians 5.18 says this. It says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, obviously, the direct application is, don't be controlled by wine. Don't be controlled by alcohol. But the other implication is, and maybe this is a stretch, but I don't think that it is, anything that you are drunk with doesn't have to be alcohol. The idea of being drunk means to be controlled by, to be constrained by, to be led by. So if you're drunk with anything, you can be drunk with power. You can be drunk with selfishness. You can be drunk with all kinds of stuff. But what he's saying is, instead of being drunk with those things, empty yourself of that fleshly stuff because anything that you're controlled by other than God is an idol. Anything that you're controlled, you're putting something else in the control of you that God has given his own son and bled on the cross to purchase back for you. And really, he bought it back for himself. We're no longer our own. We're his. So he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk is the idea to be drunk with the Spirit. If you've ever been to a Pentecostal church where it goes crazy, I'm not talking about that. Because the fruit of the Spirit is not chaos, by the way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Self-control isn't me getting my will done. Self-control is when God makes me in my right mind and I'm able to, by His grace and the power of His Spirit, say yes to the things that He's leading me to do. To say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh, we can't do that without the power of the Spirit. Can't do it on our own. And so empty yourself. So we need to prepare our hearts. And as we prepare our hearts, we can receive the Word of God properly. So why prepare your heart? He says, receive with meekness. That takes humility. Now, how many of us would love to be humble, and yet we don't like the pathway it takes to get to humility? And I say that because the pathway to humility is <laughs> what we don't like. That's humiliation. But if we think about it, if we're willing to be humble and teachable and patient in suffering, 
and willing to follow when it seems to make no sense, that's called surrender. God's not called us to do anything other than put up the white flag and say, God, I need you. I can't. I'm trying to control things, and I can't control the things that I thought I could. And he says, surrender. Surrender your will. Surrender your plans. Surrender your strengths. Give everything to me, and then I'll give it back to you under the power of the Spirit, and you'll be able to do the things that I've given you to do. No longer giving glory to yourself. No longer frustrated, but now you're doing it with my power, and, and you're going to be able to do it. Look at that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, I have it for you on the screen. It says, blessed are the meek. And that word in the Hebrew means, oh, how happy. Now, we're not talking about like happiness when I open up a happy meal. We're not talking about happiness when your team wins the Super Bowl. That's fleeting. That goes away. Next year, they're going to lose. Come on, Lord, can the Patriots please lose next year? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's for my wife. She's not a Patriots fan. Blessed are the meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now, how do, the, how do men and, and, and women take control of the earth right now? Through meekness or through power and inflicting pressure and going out and fighting wars? But what Jesus says is that the meek are actually the ones that are going to inherit the earth, though it seems that the powerful do right now. But the most powerful man that ever lived was Jesus. And he was meek. Does that mean that he was weak? No, that means that he was teachable. That he was patient under suffering. That he was willing to do everything that the Father told him to do. Meekness is, we're going to study later in James, is the idea of a ship that is guidable by its rudder. And the rudder is not nearly as big as the ship. Meekness is the picture of a horse with all of its one horsepower the strongest horse you've ever seen. What is it guided by? But a bit in its mouth. Now, I get it. Some horses are not so easily guided. But the ones that are well-trained, the ones that are the most powerful, are actually the ones that do what the rider tells it to do by just pulling and leaning and doing all the things that it's been trained to do. It's guided by a little man or a little woman. And yet one of those biggest Clydesdales, if it's guided by that little bit, there's, there's much labor that's accomplished. It's that power under control. You can have all the power in the world and not control it, and all it creates is a mess. If you take a, just, just a little firecracker and you lay it out on the ground, or if you lay it on your hand, don't do this, but if you lay it on your hand and you light that fuse and it goes off, you'll get burned, and, and you'll go partially deaf for a while, but it won't hurt your hand. But if you take that power, you try to control it, you close your fist around it, you'll lose your hand. Power under control actually accomplishes something. And what God's given us by His Spirit, He called dunamos. The Holy Spirit, when it was given on the day of Pentecost, they were given power to do all the things that Jesus taught. And what that word is, dunamos, in the Greek is dynamite. So if you're feeling powerless right now, you're feeling like God's given you faith, but you don't have power to do the things that the disciples did, I would submit to you that you're actually not under the constraint of the Holy Spirit. That in some way or another, you're quenching the Spirit and causing Him to not have full reign. You're not giving Him the reins. You're saying, Jesus, take the wheel, but you're telling Him where to turn. And so we have to receive the implanted word. So in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, talks about four different types of soil. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read through them. We've read them in previous weeks, but there's four types of soil. There's the hard soil. There's the soil that's on the wayside. There's the soil that's kind of thorny. It's kind of ruled over by the cares of the world. It's busy. There's the soil that, um, that's soft and actually produces fruit. And um, so there's lots of different types of soil, and I've forgotten one. But on the next slide I have for you, and I'm going to show you right here in this picture. This is a picture in, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's either Bethlehem or Nazareth. I can't remember. But they had this uh, vineyard, and what you see is that the pathway there is actually uh, the way that's hard. It's the pathway. They would sow seed on this area. Now, we plow our fields. We don't have pathways through the middle of them but they're doing it by hand. 
So when they sow the seed, it lands on all kinds of soil. Some of the soil, like to the left there, is actually soil that is rocky, but underneath it, it's rocky. So even if something does grow, it grows up a little bit, the sun hits it, because the roots haven't gone down deep, it gets burned up. There's no fruit produced. There's the thorny soil where it's got all the weeds on it. It's got no capacity to grow anything else. It's got too much going on. And so the cares of the world choke out the fruit. And then there's actually one little piece there up to the right of the, the, woman, the girl's head. That's my friend Kat, by the way. She's pretty cool. But she's, she's standing there, and, and you can see that little area over there that's actually uh, producing plants that can produce fruit. And so all of that said, there are four types of fruit, and we need to check our hearts. The hard heart, the pathway, these are the folks that Jesus explains did not understand or receive the word, and therefore they bore no fruit. So we need to pray that God would give us understanding in his word. The shallow heart is the one that's very emotional. It's the rocky soil. It's got rock underneath the surface. It's shallow. It's emotional. It receives the word, but it has no depth to the roots. And so it bears no fruit because it gets burned up. A little bit of persecution, a little bit of adversity in your life. And you're like, you know what? Don't really have time for that, Jesus. And so we don't respond properly to the word. The crowded heart is the thorny. It's the thorny soil. It's got weeds all over it. And many of our lives are that way. I think that this describes most American Christians. Maybe I'm painting with a broad brush, but many of us are so busy. We've got so much planted in our hearts and in our lives that takes precedent over Jesus. And because of that, we don't have time for Jesus. Now, as a Christian, the word Christian means Christ follower. If we don't have time to follow Christ as Christ followers, our priorities are wrong. It's time to do some weeding, folks, you know? And I, have, I say that knowing that I have a heart that's just as, as, as likely to be that way. So we need to be willing to let God weed things. It, this heart lacks repentance, and it permits sin to crowd out the word. Our hearts can not only be crowded out by activity, but also by sin. We're too busy to really contemplate where we really stand with God. And so we don't confess. We don't repent. We don't turn around. And then later we're like, why don't, why don't I ever, why am I not able to ever produce any fruit for the kingdom of God? And then there's the fruitful heart. This is the heart that receives the word, allows it to take root, and it produced a bountiful harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so is your faith fruitful lately? And if it's not, I would ask you to consider the condition of your heart. The, the heart's condition will help or it will hinder your ability to receive God's word. And I don't know about you, but for years, as a, I'll, I'll call myself a quasi-believer. I was busy, I was going to college, other things choked things out. There was lots of sin that I had not repented of. And I always wondered, why don't I understand the word of God? Why is it Greek to me? Why, I could be reading something else completely and it still wouldn't make sense. But, but God had to change my heart. He had to make it soft. He had to make it subtle. He had to make it able to receive. And so um, he says in verse 20 through 25, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, I want to make a, a distinction between hearers and listeners. Hearers receive the information. The data comes into our brains. We log it. We move on. It's like downloading a song off the internet. You can download a song off the internet, on your phone, on your computer, and then listen to it and move on. But if you don't actually take it in, if you don't hit play, then it doesn't do you any good. But he says, hearers and listeners. So listeners receive the instruction and they begin obeying. Now, many of you have children. Some of you are children. You know, like we're all, we've all had children or we, we all are children of somebody, right? Um, but there are many times where our parents say, you never listen to me. Now, many times they're not actually saying you didn't hear what I said. They're saying you didn't listen. And listening is different than hearing. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. 
They both hear me. They hear everything. They hear all the stuff I don't want them to hear. But they hear everything, but they don't always listen. And when they listen, I can tell because why? They either stop that or they start doing that. And when they start doing that, I know they're listening. How different are we? So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus completes uh, a sermon that many supposed that was kind of what he preached everywhere he went. But in Matthew chapter 7, he, he closes his sermon, if you will, or his teaching on the mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the whole thing written down by the pen of Matthew. But in chapter 7, verse 24, to all of those who heard what he said, he laid down a warning and, and a blessing. I just spilled all over myself. It's like beard balm. There you go. In Matthew chapter 7, sometimes you just got to roll with it. That happens all the time. Usually just nobody's watching. Matthew chapter 7, he issues a warning to those who have just heard the keys to the kingdom that he's teaching. And it's a sobering word, or at least it should be. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on a firm foundation, on the rock. And that rock is Christ. But then he says to those who hear these sayings of mine and do not do them, will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So both individuals that he's talking about, both groups, heard his word. Both groups will experience trials of this life. Both will experience different results. Those who hear and do will be likened to the person that built his house on the rock. So we can either become foolish or we can become wise based on our hearing and doing what Jesus teaches. And so the word also uh, affects the, what we do. So in verse 23, he says, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So what's a mirror for? It's for looking at to go, okay, what do I look like? Because we can't see ourselves without a reflection. And many of us have spouses that lovingly go, you're not going to wear that, are you? Or they'll say, hey, you got coffee in your beard. Or they'll, they'll, they'll reflect to us what we need to know to kind of clean this thing up. But, and, and many of us have mirrors. Most of us probably have mirrors in our house so we can at least get it to where is our standard, right? But the Word of God is a mirror for our souls. You can't look in the mirror and go, I'm doing good today, spiritually. You can say, I know what I look like. I need to brush my teeth. I need to comb my hair. But we can't see how we're doing spiritually. We walk by faith and not by sight. But the Word of God actually is a mirror that God's given us, a blessing to examine our hearts. And in Hebrews chapter 4, which is just a few pages to the left, in verse 12, this is what the writer writes down about the Word of God. The Word of God is living, and it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And look at this, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God can actually examine not only what you do, but your intentions. How many times have you been even confused about your own intentions when you knew what you did, but you weren't sure why you did it. God can examine our hearts as we let the Word of God, instead of examining God's Word and putting it to the test, let it, let it test us. Let the Word of God examine you. And if you'll be willing to do that, what He does is He reveals to us who we really are, and there's a benefit from it. He cleanses us. He changes us. He examines us. In Psalm chapter 139, verse 23, where I'm turning next, 
says this. King David praying says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, no person can do that. But God can. God knows us better than even someone that would be our spouse. Uh, God knows us better than the people that know us the best. And in Psalm 139, I want you to look at this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. That word know is an intimate knowledge that only God can have. It's a picture of, in Genesis, where they beget each other. You know, you got Adam and Eve knew one another, and they begot Cain and Abel. They knew one another. That's intimate knowledge. That's knowledge of a, a wife and a husband. That's, they're talking about physically knowing one another, but Jesus is our husband as Christians. Did you know that? It's kind of odd for us men to think about that, but he's our husband, and we are the bride of Christ. And he knows us like a husband knows his bride, except he knows us even better than that. Intimately knowing the intentions of our heart, sifting through them and revealing to us where we really stand. And so he says, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Keep me from stumbling over stuff that's going to trip me up and cause grief and sorrow and pain. And so let God of the word examine you. And the word of God reveals and then restores us. God doesn't just point at us and say, this is what's wrong with you. I'll see you later. God's not like that. He's not the truth without love, God. He, he actually comes to us. He says, here's what's going on, and here's how I'm going to help you get past this. But sometimes what we do is we see him as condemning only. But he doesn't condemn those that come to him through faith in Jesus. He actually convicts us of sin. Condemnation pushes us away from God. That's not, that's not Jesus. Read his interactions with the most sinful people. He didn't condemn them. The woman at the well, she, was, he, she said, I don't have a husband. He goes, you've said rightly. You've been married before, and now you're not married, and you've been with five guys since then. And now you're living in sin. He, he called her out. And she said, come and see the man who told me everything I knew I ever did. She wasn't blown away. She didn't feel condemned or pushed away. She went to town and brought everybody back to meet him. Because the way that he interacted was that he revealed the truth about her and then told her about rivers of living water, told her about healing, told her about restoration. And in the same way, he did that with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He said, where are your accusers? After basically writing down whatever he wrote that made all of them leave from oldest to youngest. The oldest one saw what he wrote and they were like, okay, I'm out. They were convicted. But then the woman is stuck there. She was supposed to be stoned to death for her sins. And yet Jesus looked at her and said, where are your accusers? She said, they're not around anymore. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> That's love. He had every righteous reason to be able to condemn her to death. The law said she could be condemned to death, but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so in the same way, we still are in that process. So the word reveals to us as Christians, as believers, where our hearts actually are, even though we've already been saved and been quickened to life. So he says there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. What did he just say? Don't deceive yourselves. Don't be deceived. And then he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, we vocalize them, we speak them back to God, we basically say, Lord, I agree with your standard. What it says there is, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he says again, if we say that we have not sinned, then we're calling him a liar and his word's not in us. So that word being in us witnesses to us that we have sinned. And so here we are back in, in James, and he continues on, and, and he says, uh, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. 
who responds in faith to the word of God and obeys. And then he says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious, yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and, look at this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Holy, sanctified, set apart from the world, different. That's not legalism. That's what God's called us to, to be different. But don't deceive yourself, he says. So think about this not deceiving yourself, and let's look at an example in the gospel real quick in Mark chapter 14, where Peter, the most uh, well-known and probably the best related to apostle, is quick to speak, slow to hear, and quick to wrath. Mark chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus explaining to his disciples that he's going to go to the cross. And then in Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus speaks specifically to Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus speaks specifically to his disciples and says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and he speaks the word of God, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, basically explained away what he had just said and disagreed. He said, even if all are made to stumble, I will not be. He, he didn't confess that the word of God was right. He argued with it. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. He gets more specific. Like, I'm not just making this up. I'm not generalizing. You're going to deny me. But then Jesus, quick to wrath, he spoke vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. They followed Peter's example. But what we find out in John chapter 21 is that the word of God was right about Peter. In John chapter 21, Jesus meets them in Galilee like he said he would. He was true to his word. And uh, what we find out is that when when Peter told Jesus, I'm not going to forsake you, he said, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, Peter. He's going to shake you up. But don't worry, I've prayed to the Father that he would restore you. He told him this ahead of time. So then we get to John chapter 21, and they had eaten breakfast, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheeps, my sheeps, my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter, by this time, is grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Somebody asks you three times, do you really love me? Starts making you think they don't believe what you've just said. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. And he does. He says, you know that I love you. And Jesus restores him and says, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself. So he reveals to him what he's already known. You're going to deny me. And then when he realizes I messed up and God's word came true, and then Peter says, yes, I love you, then Jesus reveals to him more. And I wonder when Peter said this to him, Peter's ears perked up a little bit better this time. I wonder if he was slower to speak and kind of go, "Ah, I don't think so, Lord. I think at this point he goes, okay, wait a minute. Every time Jesus says something to me, it comes to pass. Okay, Lord. So he says to him something really fun. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie you up and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So further revelation was given to Peter when he stopped not listening, when he started listening, when he stopped talking, when he stopped getting angry. And so then share what God has done. That's the end. Receive God's word. Allow your heart to be prepared to receive more of it. And then once you've received it, 
Don't just talk about it, but do it. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. The word religion, anyone thinks they're religious. The word religion means the outward practice of serving God. Uh, in, in secular circles, it means to relink with God, to try to prove yourself to him. But in this context, it means the outward practice of serving God. And that word is used five times in the New Testament. In James 1, Colossians 2, and Acts chapter 26 are three of them. But in these, the word religion is translated worshiping. Religion, to worship. Relationship. So true religion in God's sight is not ceremony. It's not showing up. Excuse me, it's, 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 it's not a show. It's not lip service. It's not location. It's not only on special days. If you're Christmas or Easter, God's not looking for you to just act like you obey him, but he's true religion in God's sight is a lifestyle. And in this case, he gives them ways that they can serve him by how they speak. What we talk about reveals our heart condition by what we, how we serve. Words are no substitute for obedience. And then separation from the world, keeping oneself unspotted from the world. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, sums it up. He says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, that unspottedness from the world, without which no one will see the Lord. And so receiving the word has to do with us being sanctified, has to do with us serving God and revealing him to the world, but it also has to do with just God's worth it. And so um, receive the word, respond to the word, and then reach out out of what he's done for you personally. So, Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus, the word of God. I pray for each one of us that we would be quick to listen, that we'd be speedy to receive, that we'd be slow to speak, that we would stop explaining away the things that will create and unleash the power of God in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to stop wrathfully responding when you're poking us by your spirit, but instead let patience have its perfect work in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we just close with a song. Lord, we, Jesus, we need you to be our shepherd. You're not just our ticket to heaven, but you promise to be our shepherd. So would you do that for us this morning? And would you do it for us this week? And would you do that for us day by day? Help us to walk with you and to follow you in all of our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.